Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, we had uh, put this podcast to bed on Friday a few hours before the uh, news of Justice Ginsburg's passing. And I wanted just to add something before you hear the show that we had put together with James Carville and Philippe Rhinus. Uh, I, like almost uh, anyone who pays attention to our justice system, was a huge admirer of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I was a member of the Judiciary Committee during my years in the Senate. And though I wasn't a lawyer, I did play one in a sketch. And I had a very deep appreciation for who Ruth Bader Ginsburg was and uh, for the soaring contributions uh, that she made, not just in expanding the rights of women, but uh, for her being just a warrior for economic and environmental justice, for voting rights, her fierce opposition to Citizens United, and just her amazing energy and tenacity and brilliance. She was a powerful writer. You may remember her famous dissent of the just horrible 5-4 Shelby County decision that unraveled the 1965 Civil Rights Act because it got rid of preclearance. The preclearance remedy was basically that any changes in election laws made by states and other jurisdictions, say counties, which had been shown to be discriminatory in the past, any any changes in election laws that those jurisdictions were proposing had to be reviewed and approved or pre-cleared by the Justice Department before they could take effect. Because these were places that had had a history of making it harder for, oh, say, people of color to vote, uh, any changes they made in their election laws had to Past scrutiny. Now, uh, Chief Justice Roberts uh, wrote the opinion for the majority, which got rid of preclearance. He said that the wrote that the preclearance remedy had worked so well that there were no longer just there's no longer any need for it. That has shown to be complete bullshit. And since, and in her dissent at the time, Justice Ginsburg wrote that quote throwing out preclearance when it has worked and is continuing to work to stop discriminatory changes is like throwing away your umbrella in a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. And she's been proven to be exactly right. And those jurisdictions have gone back to systemically making it harder for people of color to vote. The conservatives on the court have shown absolutely no interest in revisiting the decision, and and Republicans in Congress have absolutely no interest in rewriting the law in the way it would need to be rewritten in order to reestablish preclearance. Uh, it's just one of the millions <laughs> of reasons that we have to win this election and both the presidency and take back the Senate. And speaking of the Senate, I cannot tell you how maddening all of this is. And just how disgusting I find Mitch McConnell, who blocked Merrick Garland 
in the way he did with the entirely bogus rationale he gave, the so-called Biden doctrine, which was just a, a lie. And what he's doing now gives complete proof to that lie. And of course, he, he doesn't care. Believe me, if you think Mitch McConnell is a sick, cynical, ugly monster, well, he's just much, much worse than that. And to get some perspective on that, you might want to go back to my podcast with Howard Feynman, who's been uh, covering McConnell since Howard worked for the Louisville Courier-General in the mid-70s. It, it, it was a really good podcast, you know, for, for a change. So let's go uh, to my interviews with James Carville and Philippe Rhinus, who was Hillary Clinton's sparring partner in preparation for the 2016 debates. And I, I just want to add one last thing, which I forgot to include in my intro to uh, Philippe. During the interview, I did get a little emotional. And when I was uh, talking about how so many kids can't go to school because of COVID and uh, my anger as a Trump for the completely irrational response he's had to the pandemic. And one of, one of the reasons I get emotional in that part is that I have grandchildren who are paying the price, as are just millions of children right now, for his incompetence, dishonesty, his negligence. So here's what you would have heard if we hadn't gotten that terrible news on Friday night. Hey, everybody, I got a great one today, you know, for a change. But this one really does represent a, a change because I'm doing two separate interviews, both looking forward to the big debate coming up. You know, when uh, David Axelrod uh, did the podcast uh, about a month ago, he said that the first debate will be the single most critical event of this campaign. So I have two guests who know a little bit about preparing a presidential nominee for debates. James Carville, part of the consulting team that uh, got Bill Clinton elected to the White House twice. And Philippe Rhinus, who played Donald Trump in Hillary Clinton's debate prep in 2016. He's going to tell us how you prepare to be a candidate's debate sparring partner when her opponent in the ring will be Donald Trump. And what he learned from that intense experience. And he gives a, a really a unique perspective on how Joe Biden himself should prepare for the most important two hours of his and maybe our lifetimes. First, I uh, want to touch on last week's podcast with Lori Garrett and Andy Slavitt, which was about the vaccine, which became about uh, how we no longer have any baseline of truth. Uh, in this country anymore. We, we have a president who disgorges a constant torrent of lies, whether uh, they're about science or Russia or his taxes or law and order or Biden or, you know, what he said five minutes ago. You know, in 1995, I wrote uh, a number one New York Times bestseller titled Rush Limbaugh is a big fat idiot and other observations, and it was really about right-wing lying. There's a reason 
Donald Trump bestowed the Presidential Medal of Freedom on Rush Limbaugh, the same medal with which Martin Luther King, Cesar Chavez, and the astronauts of Apollo 13 were honored. Without Rush, there would be no President Donald Trump. A a few years ago, I wrote another New York Times bestseller, uh, Lies and the Lying Liars Who Tell Them a Fair and Balanced Look to the Right. And that was about Fox News and uh, Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity and Ann Coulter and Dick Cheney. And people at the time, uh, they said to me, you can't call people liars. And I said, well, they're, they're lying. Mark Twain uh, has often been credited uh, with the famous truism, a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on. Uh, with the internet, that became literally true. And we have the right-wing alternative media just gushing obscene bile and malicious effluent into our digital information system. You know, on the second day of the Trump administration, when Kellyanne Conway announced that the administration would be putting out alternative facts, we we thought that was laughable. But she was telling us how it was going to be. You, You can't run a functioning society if you don't agree on facts. This, this, of course, has been going on forever. There weren't too many kings or emperors or autocrats who bothered to be scrupulously honest. Things were especially bad, uh, for example, before the Enlightenment. But I grew up in a time where at least society agreed on certain facts. Science is based on evidence. We agreed that the Earth was round and what the force of gravity is, and so we were able to send a man to the moon. We, we have the West Coast burning. Scientists are telling us that because of global warming, the East Antarctic ice sheet is now vulnerable to collapse and would raise sea level by 10 feet around the world if it, if it melted entirely. But the president said in California this week that things are going to get colder because winter is coming and that the fires in the West Coast could have been prevented if folks in California and in Oregon had just raked the forest. There is so much at stake in this coming debate, but that's why I do this podcast. I believe that if Vice President Biden listens to my two guests today, that it will help his debate performance And that could very well determine the outcome of this election, the second most important election of our lifetime, the first being the last election, which we blew. And we cannot let that happen again. So let's first go to James Carville. Now you'll hear we had some technical difficulties and a couple of interruptions during this, but I think you'll find those actually entertaining. Also, uh, we begin our conversation talking about James' daughter, Maddie, with whom I had a delightful text back and forth on her dad's phone. And we learned that Maddie is engaged to get married and that she and her fiancé had to delay their wedding because of of COVID. But James very proudly mentions that Maddie worked for 
New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrieu, and that she worked on the first draft of a speech that he gave a couple years ago when he took down a few of the Confederate statues there in the city of New Orleans. And this was one of the most powerful and moving speeches I've ever heard. And her fiancé did the final draft of the speech with the mayor. So before I get to James, I, I know he would want me to play just a few short minutes of this beautiful, important speech. This is Mitch Landro from May 2017. There is a difference, you see, between remembrance of history and the reverence of it. For America, New Orleans, it has been a long and winding road marked by tragedy and triumph, but we cannot be afraid of the truth as President George W. Bush said at the, at the dedication ceremony for the National Museum of African American History and Culture, and I quote, a great nation does not hide its history. It faces its flaws and it corrects them. So today I want to speak about why we chose to remove these four monuments to the lost cause of the Confederacy, but also how and why this process can move us towards healing and understanding each other. So let's start with the facts. The historic record is clear. Robert E. Lee, Jeff Davis, PGT Beauregard statutes were not erected to just honor these men, but as part of a movement which became known as the cult of the lost cause. This cult had one goal and one goal only, through monuments and through other means to rewrite history, to hide the truth which is that the Confederacy was on the wrong side of humanity. First erected 166 years after the founding of our cities, 19 years after the Civil War. These monuments that we took down were meant to rebrand the history of our city and the ideals of the Confederacy. It is self-evident that these men did not fight for the United States of America. They fought against it. They may have been warriors, but in this cause, they were not patriots. These statutes are not just stone and metal. They're not just innocent remembrances of a benign history. These monuments celebrate a fictional sanitized Confederacy, ignoring the death, ignoring the enslavement, ignoring the terror that it actually stood for. And after the Civil War, these monuments were part of that terrorism, as much as burning a cross on someone's lawn. They were erected purposefully to send a strong message to all who walked in the shadows about who was still in charge in this city. That just gives me chills. Do yourself a favor and Google that speech and, and, and give it a listen. But first, enjoy the rest of this podcast with my two guests. A little later, Philippe Rhinus, who studied Donald Trump far too long and intensely, than is healthy for a human being. But first, the raging Cajun, James Carville. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, 
Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. So I uh, texted you to, to set this up, right? Right. And then I, I get this text. Uh, Senator Franken, James' eldest daughter here, texting on his behalf while he eats his dinner. If he doesn't do your podcast, we'll send him back to the swamp he hatched from. <laughs> now, uh, how old is your eldest daughter? She is 25, and she is was to be getting married next month, but obviously we're not having a wedding. In a particular note, she went to work for the Mitch Landry, the mayor of New Orleans, and a part of an application was to write a draft of a speech to remove the Confederate monuments. Wow. Of which she did, and the guy that she's marrying is a, worked for Mitch for 11 years. He's actually from Chicago, and he was the chief speechwriter, and he wrote the last draft. That was a brilliant, brilliant brilliant speech that was a beautiful speech and i'll always be proud of my family's part in that speech because uh most people don't realize this but my great-grandfather was actually a soldier in the union army and was a republican member of the louisiana legislature so wait a minute when did he go move to louisiana after the war. Oh, after the war. So there's a Union soldier. Okay, that makes sense. It's kind of doubtful that he saw any action. Okay, well, if you ever run for office, don't say that. The story we were told is he had to ask him, and he came to Louisiana. I could never figure, why, why would you come to Louisiana if you had asked? Why didn't you just go to Arizona or something, you know? <laughs> yeah. But the truth of the matter is, he was actually a carpetbag. And, of course, his widow, as complicated as things are, hold on just a second, let me... Tell him to pull off on a vacuum cleaner here. Thank you, y'all. Hello. Okay, James now is uh, clarifying something with uh, folks around him, or maybe looking for a family member. We we don't know, but uh... I'm sorry, I'm back. It's it's the sounds of affluence. Somebody is vacuum cleaning while I'm on a. <laughs> okay. We're good. So far, this has just gone flawlessly. Yeah, it couldn't be any better. So um, so you, the, your daughter, it sounds like the spawn of James Carville and Mary Madeline turned out pretty good. I, I am, I'm quite proud of her. My youngest, yes, she is. And uh, she's a very uh, 
the arguments we get in are I am pretty left and she's pretty left of me. <laughs> well, I know that. And uh, you grew up in Louisiana, obviously. And so uh, kind of a racist state, would you say? When, when you're yes. Racist? Yeah. Yeah. They say there are only three things I teach my students, race, water, and oil. It, it is it is the history of the state. And they're still the history of the state. And race and water are linked. They're joined at the hip. Because every time something happens, when I mean water, I mean coastal erosion, I mean hurricanes, I mean flooding, I mean all of the things that come with being part of a culture in a low-lying state that is affected by climate by probably twice the rate of any state not named Florida in the United States. I also think that oil and water are related because the incidence of cancer in places where there are toxic chemicals in the water is much higher. They're also related in another way. Louisiana has lost an enormous amount of land. And a significant contributor to the enormous amount of land has been the oil companies coming in digging canals in Louisiana marsh and then abandoning the canals which cause, if you just stop and think about basic physics, they collapse and they have more and more saltwater intrusion. The greatest ongoing environmental disaster, bar none, by factor of 10, is the loss of land on the Louisiana coastline. And you, you cannot imagine the long-term effects for the rest of the nation particularly from, let's just say, Minnesota. Minnesota's goods basically get to the world market through the port of New Orleans. So are you going to get them out? That's it. And that is true for two-thirds of the country. You have to have a southern terminus on the Mississippi River. How are you going, how are you going to get Minnesota soybeans or Minnesota manufactured products or anything else to anywhere in the world if you don't send them down the river. You can't. So are you saying that this erosion has jeopardized the port of New Orleans? Oh, of course it has. It's jeopardized. It's going to jeopardize the entire flow of commerce in the middle part of the United States. It, it absolutely will. Okay, that's something frightening to add to my list of horrible, yeah, frightening it's a things. Real, it is a real scary, scary thing that is going on, and it's been going on for a long time. And, it, and of course, the people that are going to suffer the most from this, as always, are African-American people. I guarantee you two-thirds to three-quarters of all African-Americans live close to the Mississippi River, and there, the, the, the water was against the levee in Baton Rouge for 217 days. That's just, that's just a kind of a fact that people, you know, really need to appreciate. There used to be a sign on the urinal in, in Minneapolis that said, please piss in urinal, Louisiana needs drinking water. <laughs> right? There's actually some truth to that. Mm -hmm. And it was obviously processed. 
before yeah, you drank it at the now, club. Now, Minnesota's access to world markets basically passes through Louisiana. Well, it has for a long time. Thank God for the Louisiana purchase. Right. <laughs> Good move. Uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, violating, I believe, the Constitution. <laughs> but he had a big opportunity yeah, to increase the size of the United States. Or... Just put me on hold. Just one minute. Okay. Okay. Uh, James is now uh, taking a phone call. Hello? And uh, Hello? clearly has uh, Hello? not done the normal um clearing Hello. of his time like most of my guests let's see if we can listen in on what he's saying okay let me let me do that hold on now hold, hold, hold on i'm doing it <laughs> i believe he, that might i think i heard mary that might be mary madeline he's calling to, or there may be another marriage, common name, uh, common name both in uh, Louisiana and actually all over the United States. Many countries, Maria is, uh, is used. Uh, I'm sorry, this is just, a, let's keep going. Plow no, 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 that was, uh, we overheard some of it. Right. <laughs> We don't need that for color. Okay, let's go. Okay. <laughs> okay. How important is this first debate? You've obviously coached Bill Clinton for debates. And uh, so uh, I, I talked to Axelrod about this, about strategy. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I have many, but my, my principal thought is this. First of all, he's going to start with his normal bullshit. He's going to say all kinds of things, right? And all... But Vice President Biden needs to do is look at right now and said, you, it's been documented you've lied 22,418 times. I am not going to spend my time pointing out you've just added five more to that. I'm going to look <laughs> at the American people and say simply, we are 4% of the world's population. We have 22% of the deaths. That is a number that is not good. Now, let me tell you what I'm going to do. Stay out of his bullshit. And just every time, you know, if I'm, I'm a boxing fan, just admit it. As soon as he dropped his right hand, step in, throw a ferocious combo, and get out. And that's all you have to do. Just, just keep get five statistics that you go in with that are devastating. Say them, and then turn around and tell people how you're going to change America. He thinks that. You know, having four percent of the population, you know, that population to death ratio is over five to one. He thinks that's good. I don't. I'm not going to argue with him. I'm going to tell you how we can reduce it. And not only that, and this should be emphasized, other countries have opened up. And this has devastated our economy because of your right. inaction. You know, go in with a couple of things, knock the crap out of it, and move out. The problem that I, I think the Biden can, people come up to me and say, James, Biden hadn't done anything done. He has not. He's run, I think, a good campaign. I, I, he didn't have much of a campaign in the primary, but they have not done anything done. What he needs pushing forward is a memorable line in a memorable moment that people can stick to. 
I mean, he doesn't have to force it. It's, it, it's not, but you know, he, there's got to be an opportunity where he says something that, that's thick in the back of people's mind. How about something like, uh, you know, one of the problems with you is that you're a pathological liar. Not, no? No. I, I mean, no. just point out. I tried. That one could foul. The, the, the point with him is you think America's doing the best it can. Oh, you think America's doing great. I think we're not doing well at all. It's an 80% wrong track country. All right. And if you lose sight of that, you accept the way the country is today. I do not. I think we're a lot better than this. I love the line he says. Uh, he keeps telling us that if he was president, you'd feel safe. <laughs> well, he is president, whether he knows yeah. it or not. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, he has to own all this, and that's obviously what he Biden does. will make him do in the, in the debate. He's the president. And I'm not. He thinks we're doing great. I do not. You only have 80% of the people that agree with you. Basically, what you're saying is uh, hit him once, hit him, you know, just on, okay, you've lied this many times. Right. Uh, that was a lie. That was another one. There have been several so far. Uh, Axelrod suggested a uh, website that he could send people to that will be fact-checking. But then move on to this is what I want to do, and this is what you've done. This is there, what... there will be so many fact-checkers. There will be fact-check in real time. There will be fact-check in ways that you, you cannot even imagine. There will be so much fact-checking going on. There'll be fact checkers on the screen. There'll be fact checkers online. There'll be fact, you, you can't even imagine. There's going to be a fact checker's wet dream. Let them do their job. Again, it, it, by my count, he's got five more, five more facts he got wrong, but I'll, I'll let them flush that out. You know, just, just say, I've counted five, but I'll let the fact, you know, to the people that are interested in facts, you can, you can do it. I'm interested in the future. Very nice. Very nice. I like that. Hope you enjoyed that. Let's uh, take a quick break, and then we'll be back with the guy who prepped Hillary Clinton for her debates last cycle by getting into the bizarre head of Donald J. Trump. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, we're back with uh, Philippe Rhinus, who prepped Hillary Clinton for her debates with uh, Donald Trump. 
Okay, so Philippe, what do, what do you call the uh, person who plays the opposite, uh, who, who is there for the debate prep and plays the opposite uh, person? So, you know, every four years, assuming both candidates agree, which even Donald Trump did in 2016 and, and did and is doing in 2020, there are three general election debates. And, you know, it sounds crazy, but for as much as we see both candidates at that time, Trump and Hillary, and this time Biden and Trump, they're actually never together. At the time, we couldn't even remember the last time Hillary and Trump had been together. She thought it might have been his wedding 10 years earlier. It's possible Biden and Trump haven't been the same place at the same time since Trump was inaugurated. So, you know, there are 100 million people seeing the two of them for the first time. And, you know, it's a big moment and you want to get it right. And if you're a sane, rational, thoughtful human being, you actually practice for it. And the point of debate prep, it isn't to memorize answers. That That's not how any public servant really operates. And I'm sure you can relate to that. If you have one goal, it is when your candidate walks into the ring, that they're not hearing anything of that 90 minutes for the first time, that they've had a chance to think through every possibility, every answer. It's, it's like batting practice. You know, you're getting out the kinks. You're not killing yourself to put it over the wall, but you're, you're warming up. And a lot of that is sitting with your team and talking through things very just broadly about points you want to make and points that might be made against you. But then there is a part of it where you're actually standing at podiums pretending to debate your opponent. And since Donald Trump was not available and you want to be around Donald Trump as little as possible, I played Donald Trump. So about eight times over the period of six weeks before the first debate, so we're talking September of 2016, Hillary and I would stand behind podiums that were precisely measured apart the same way that the rules called for. And it was pretty cool because the backdrop we used was a set that Barack Obama's team had built in 2012 for him to practice against Mitt Romney. Um, And they took it out of storage and gave it to us. And we were at a hotel in Westchester. And we would always start these debates at 9 p.m. because that's when the debates actually start. It was a full-on simulation. And we wouldn't break character for the 90 minutes. You know, the team would watch. And then when it was over, you would discuss it. I have to say, I have a new appreciation for how tough it is just standing there especially when you're a smart person like Hillary, like you, where it's the toughest thing. Thank you. Might be thank you. Thank to, you. Thank you very to, much. To like, very like Hillary, close. like Obama. <laughs> it's interesting. You mentioned Obama because Obama, by all accounts, had a catastrophic Terrible. first debate against Mitt Romney. Terrible. We know. Um, and in fact, Axelrod and I discussed that as well. And what we discussed was how incumbent presidents almost always have a terrible first debate because they haven't debated that year, obviously. And also because they're just, uh, they're cocky. I've been president. Well, it's an unpleasant experience. You're sitting in a room with 10 to 15 snot-nosed staffers like me who are taking advantage of the situation to take out all their pent-up you know, resentment at you for working for them for 15 years. You didn't pronounce that name correctly. Uh, you skipped over this part. You forgot to say that. Oh, that answer was pretty good. Philippe, why am I thinking that Trump's team isn't quite as snot-nosed in ter- to him as you were to Hillary? So it's interesting you say that because his prep 
as I understand it, both from what was reported, but also knowing someone who was part of it, is that he wouldn't prep. So what they would do is they would sit around his Bedminster club in New Jersey and in between him eating fast food and ranting about whatever, Chris Christie would throw in a sentence here or there that was meant to elicit a response. And fast forward four years, I think he just this week said on Fox and Friends that his debate prep essentially consists of what he does every day with the press, the sparring he does. And that is a bad idea for a lot of reasons. But here's the thing, and and this is what I want to ask you about. I want to ask you a number of questions. How did you prepare? Um, I want to ask you about what surprised you about him coming out, because he is not like any other debater. For example, if you debated an issue, if you debate an issue with him, like healthcare yeah. or something, he knows nothing about it. So his answer is just going to be like his answers at press conferences. He'll just go off wherever he wants to go. Exactly. When I saw the and, first and debate with Hillary, I went, oh, it's over. It's over. She just clobbered him. That's I, I've never seen anyone give such a bad debate performance and evidently i was wrong so what i want to know is what surprised you about that and then what surprised you about the reaction to it and the aftermath you know my expertise was basically what we all have experienced over the last four years i just had a year head start um and in some ways i had a couple of decade head start growing up in new york like i had a very specific view of him that is an accurate view but what i what i did to start was, well, first off, I did the, you know, talking about drama, I did the costume stuff. I told my tailor I needed a blue suit. I needed to look like Donald Trump, but not for Halloween. Like I needed legitimate. He knew exactly what I meant. He made me the too baggy suit with the cuffs too long and uh, the too long red tie. I went on eBay. I found Trump watch. You know, I'm not six, nine or whatever he pretends to be. So I got lifts and it was more for me to get in character than full Hillary. But most substantively, I watched all the Republican primary debates or 11 of the 12 uh, because he didn't participate in one. And I watched each one three times, one uh, just the whole way through. A couple I had seen just as a you know regular you know pedestrian watching TV. Once just listening to him and whoever he was having exchange with. And once uh, standing in front of the TV behind a podium and trying to mimic his hand motions with the uh, with the volume off. And what I noticed more than anything was how different his speaking style was so distinctly different. So first off, it really reinforced the idea of him being different. A typical debate, it would be, hi, I am the moderator. I'm here at University of Wisconsin. Um, and I want to welcome our candidates. First question is to Mr. Trump. Uh, Mr. Trump, you said this crazy thing yesterday. What do you say in response? Oh, hi, I'm Donald Trump. And here's an even crazier answer to your question. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Let's move on to Marco Rubio. Senator Rubio, what is your immigration plan? Well, thank you for asking me that question. I'm so glad to be here in Wisconsin. Go Badgers. Uh, I love cheese. Let me say that when I first joined the Senate, I was one of the 19 co-sponsors of S-927. I later became a primary sponsor of 9207, blah, 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 blah. Typical senator, public servant answer. And moderator would say, Mr. Trump, 
what do you say in response? And he's like, I don't know what he just said. I'm going to build a wall. I'm going to build a big wall, tall wall. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be so beautiful. And people can't get in. I mean, the right people will get in. They'll have a door. And it has a weird effect of actually sounding honest. Right now, I'm talking to you. And I'm talking to you differently than I talk to my close friends, to my family, to my cats. We don't walk around saying everything on our mind. I don't go into an interview and saying, look, I don't feel like doing this. Just give me the damn job. And there's there's a cost to that. There's a pause. There's you know rational human beings. Think about what they say. When you remove that, which is very hard to do and the hardest thing that I had to learn, if you remove that because there are no consequences to what you say, almost like a George Costanza, you know, do everything backwards situation, life becomes very easy and you come across as very genuine. You know, if you ask Donald Trump about Social Security, he doesn't want to talk about Social Security. There was one debate in the primaries that I watched where he got a question about Social Security. And within 17 seconds, he had segued from Social Security through some digression to North Korea. I mean, that is remarkable. Donald Trump is a bad debater. That does not mean it is easy to debate him or to beat him. Actually, I'm going to give you a what if, uh, let's say Biden comes out, questions about health care. Okay. Now, I mean, th- this should be a slam dunk for Biden. The ACA guaranteed coverage for people with pre-existing conditions at no extra cost. And it did just a whole variety of great things, covered 20-some million new people. Trump said he was going to replace it with something terrific. He didn't. When the bills failed in, in Congress, he said, who knew health care was complicated? Well, putts, pretty much everyone knew that health care was complicated. So this is going to come up in the debate. I'll tell you why he will be difficult. So he will say exactly what you said. And you're going to say, putts, everyone knew it was tough. He will point to a few things. One, that he would have gotten the repeal had loser John McCain not turned his thumb down and ruined the vote. And what he will pound on is that you being Joe Biden, you lied when you said you can keep your doctor. Now, he's not going to answer the question. I mean, there is no he did not repeal Obamacare, but he's not going to go down that road. He's going to latch on to why did you lie? And it's very possible that the moderator, in this case, the first moderator is Chris Wallace of Fox, which I don't think is great for Trump. But Chris Wallace might say, Mr. Vice President, what about that? You did lie. I didn't. Obama did. Yeah, it might look like, oh, my God, Joe Biden is telling the truth. I mean, that's the thing. He's going to hem and haw. And then you have this gap. Now, we're four years later. And when Donald Trump stepped on stage with Hillary Clinton at Hofstra University, then he had never debated one on one before. And watching the primary debates, it was clear, you know, these debates are two and a half hours, but you don't talk the whole time. There are 10 of you on stage. You're the center of attention. But I had clocked it. He had never talked for more than 22 minutes in one debate. You know, he would take a little mental siesta in between things. And here you were fast forwarding to a debate where just in simplest terms, you have 45 minutes. She has 45 minutes. I knew he'd be a fish out of water for a large chunk of it. I also knew that he was not good with staying on the clock, which in the Republican primaries and any primary, 
there's a, you know ostensibly a clock, but it's not really enforced. The first thing I said when I got the gig, I said to the broader team and to Hillary, I said, look, 100% of what I say is going to sound bonkers, but 90% of it, he has said. 5% he has said, but hasn't really repeated. He might've said it on Howard Stern or some stray interview. The remaining 5%, I'm guessing. And I think everyone's like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. They were really concerned about, about me. And in the first debate, it's about 10 minutes in, and we were in this anteroom at Hofstra, and um, everyone turned around at one point and looked at me and finally understood what I meant because I had said something about healthcare and I'd used a name. I'd used the name, you know, Jonathan Gruber as someone who had told the truth, accidentally told the truth about uh, Obamacare. And they thought I was making up the name. They thought I was making up all of it. And it just realized now, most importantly, Hillary is on stage thinking, oh, my God, I've heard this. I've heard this routine about Jonathan Gruber, and I know how to answer. And, you know, it's it's at that point, you're like, this is what prep is for, that she has had this conversation before. You know, Hillary, when she came off stage, someone said, every time you look at him, do you see Philippe? And, and she said, no, but every word he says, I hear Philippe. And the first time we, we debated, the first time we had a mock debate, when it was over, she just wanted to hit me over the head. Now, I, it, one of the reasons I was so good at this is because I had worked for her at that point by, for 15 years, and just my mere presence antagonizes her. Like, like the idea that she was on stage with me as an equal is just enough to make her head boil. But when it was done, she said, God, he's annoying. <laughs> you are so annoying. <laughs> Trump is just so she had like blurred all the pronouns and me and him. And I thought that's exactly what I need to do. So, okay. So there he came back with something you had told her was one of the many things that he had said over and over again. Uh, what surprised you in, in that, that debate? In the first debate, the only thing that surprised me was just exactly how bad he was. You know, I, I, there wasn't anything he did to surprise me, but that in itself was surprising. Let's talk about the health care question. If he comes back yep. with, it would have passed if uh, McCain had voted for it. You could say, well, you know why he voted against it? Because it didn't protect people with pre-existing conditions. Because people yep. who had health insurance under the ACA would have lost their health insurance. And yep. because it would have gotten rid of Medicaid expansion. That's why John McCain voted against it, and I believe two other Republicans. That's why it went down, and that's why in 2018 we flipped 41 seats on health care because what you guys came up with was so horrible. Something okay. like that? Well, yes, except if you just write down what you just said, it's a lot of dense policy, you know, Medicaid. Blah blah blah. Pre-existing the, conditions the, the is pre not dense. Pre-existing conditions is something that everyone understands. I, I think what Joe Biden has to do is not let Donald Trump get away with the amount of nonsense that he probably will get away with ninety percent of. Trump will sit there and say, "Look, you're upset because I'm winning this debate." Look, uh, you know what I would ask Trump? Tell me if you think this would be effective. Do you remember your one? Your one policy proposal on health care 
from 2016. Do you remember what it was? I bet you you don't. I've gotten more done in four years than you got done in eight and that you would get done as president. Everyone knows it. Everyone knows. It. Yeah. Tw- yeah. About 12 thing. million people have lost their health care, their health insurance. That's what you got done. You know what your one because you don't remember your one proposal. Here's what it was to allow insurance companies to sell insurance across state lines. And guess what? You don't remember it because it was such a stupid idea. Not one Republican bill included that. Why? Because it's legal to do it already in six states. And guess how many insurance companies have taken those six states on, have done it? None. Zero. Zero. I bet you don't even know why they they don't do it. And then you can explain why. That is the right answer. The question is, could Hillary Clinton at the time, or now more specifically with your example, could Joe Biden deliver that answer effectively and not go so out of body that it becomes a so problem? So look, if you go into a debate thinking, I need a new strategy tonight, I got to be different, then you have larger problems. Ideally, a debate is you're being the guy that got you the nomination that has you in the lead that people seem to like. I've seen well, Biden angry. I've him. seen him angry. I oh, think yeah. he can do that. Oh, I've yeah. seen Hillary anger. Oh, I believe me. <laughs> I've seen it too. I've been on the receiving end of it. If Biden goes in and he's a different person, like a lot of people, you could you could dumb this down into people, Biden's doing well because they don't like Trump. But they also might like Biden because he's so different than Trump. Like you couldn't have an equally boastful blowhard and think that people are going to choose that one. They might say, hey, if we have to get stuck with this kind of person, I'll go with Donald Trump because you can't out-Trump Trump. Biden's a dignified guy. I mean, he's got ramrod straight posture. He looks the part. He's got great ties. If he is out of sorts, it's possible that people say, oh, Joe Biden's worried about something. Saying to him, look, you lied to the American people about COVID. We have... Nearly 200,000 people dead. We have 5% of the world's population and over 20% of the world's fatalities. That's on you. And you knew what was happening and you denied that it was happening. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a thing called the truth. And one of the fatalities of this president is the truth. This guy can't tell the truth. He doesn't know what the truth is. He's on tape. You will hear that, but you're not going to hear that after every lie. There's a limit to how many times you can do that. Now, hopefully you hear it up front and hopefully you hear it in a way that adds on to it where everything you're about to hear, you need to know is probably a lie because that's what he does the best. That sounds obvious, but that is a, a an aggressive thing that Joe Biden has to do. You know, again, it's different when you're but on can he do time. it as much in sadness as in anger? Because he'll have his own time. He'll have oh, yeah. a minute or a minute oh, yeah. and a half or two minutes. And can he say yeah. there's no baseline for truth in this country anymore? You are having a constructive debate while someone is having an unconstructive argument that's more akin to a rant or nervous breakdown. The question is not going to be what what Donald Trump shows up, it's the question is going to be what Joe Biden shows up. Because, you know, to the extent that Donald Trump says, 
I'm using my daily sparring as debate prep. <laughs> that guy on stage is not going to do well. I mean, the guy's a mess. And it's very hard to follow him. His language, you know, he digresses. Four years ago, he felt no need to defend himself. All he does now is feel a need to defend himself. I don't think he expected to win. He was building his no. brand. And so yeah. being blustery and doing what he did yeah. was, it was no lose for him. So he wasn't under the kind of pressure that Biden's under the pressure right now of saving the world, as far as I can tell. But I have to differ with you. It's, it's insane not to go into this debate angry at him. Oh, I, 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 I totally agree. Uh, you got to call bullshit. I mean, th there's no question about that. And you got to call bullshit in a direct way, not in a these are untruths. I mean, this can't be watching CNN a year ago where, where the, or New York Times where using the word lies is somehow like the L word. How can you not be furious? Now, you can be furious also in in sadness because this has been tragic. But look, at I have grandchildren, my grandchildren. can't go to school. They can't be with their friends. They can in other countries who handled this right. This is going to affect these kids forever. This is a tragedy. We've lost 200,000 people. We are 5% of the world's population. You bungled this so badly. You're 100% right. Now, Joe Biden actually does have that in him. He well, does, he and him, he can fairness. do it in a slightly different way, but the anger has to be there because yes. the American people should be, everyone should be furious at this man. Listen, and if you're not furious about that, how about calling everyone who ever was in our military a sucker to loser? How about that? I, if I were Joe Biden... I'd go in there and I would say, Chris, I yield all my time to Donald Trump and let him talk for 90 minutes because that Donald Trump that we've seen for four years, but particularly the last year and even the last month has been different. And he's not that Donald Trump is not winning this race. So to some extent, you're, you want to find a weird balance between exactly what you're saying, calling things out and not taking any crap but also prevent defense. And that's a weird combination. I like that strategy, and, though, of saying, you know what? Go ahead. Keep talking. Keep talking. Yeah. Joe Biden, you're not fighting Joe Biden on this. Joe Biden, when he announced for president, it was via video, and he went right at Trump. Now, that sounds so obvious. Before then, the debate in 2019 was whether or not these candidates should be talking about Donald Trump or only about a positive future. It was ridiculous. It was absolutely ridiculous. And Joe Biden saw that it was ridiculous. Joe Biden, when he was asked about his son, he said, look, you want to go after me? Come after me. But if you go after my family, I'm going to come back hard. When Donald Trump said Joe Biden has lost a step, he's got something missing upstairs. You know what? If Donald Trump wants to have the argument about cognition and who's still with it, bring it. I'm happy to have that with my opponent. Joe Biden is very capable of doing exactly what you're saying. The question in a lot of ways is, can he do it naturally? Which I think the answer is yes. Can he do it uh, at the right moments? Which to me, I think is early on. Like what you said about framing 
that this guy lies. You got to do that up front because he's going to do it. He's going to lie about lying. It's very hard when you're someone like Joe Biden to boast. You know, that's supposed to be a nice attribute, but you've got to be a little bit more direct. People are running around saying, do I like this guy or do I like that guy? And they seem to be saying Biden. And by say they, I mean the sliver of the world that somehow doesn't isn't sure about which one of them they like better. This is the biggest moment he has to reinforce that. It's just a bigger audience. You know, COVID is the biggest event to happen to the world in yeah. a long, long time since, and maybe since World War II. Um, and you handle it or you don't. You're the president of the United States. And he didn't. I think he should do a Joe Biden version of what I did. I think he, I, that's what I think he should do. I think he should go into this debate with all the anger and outrage that every American rightfully has. I really do. And he can do that. He, and, and by the way, that's how Donald Trump won to the extent that he won on, on substance was that he channeled the anger that people had. Hopefully the anger is now with him. I mean, what the biggest liability for Donald Trump is that the biggest difference between now and 2016 is that now he has a record. And that record, which you've been dismantling, is there's no word for how horrific it is. I mean, it is actually, in fact, costing lives. Let me ask you another thing. In the, I think it was the first Bush-Gore uh, debate, Gore kind of invades Bush's space. Yep. It's a little behind him. And Bush kind of turns around and looks at him and kind of nods like, very dismissively yep. going like, really? Yep. Okay, hi. Yep. And then turns around. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay, so in, I can't remember which debate it was, but it was either the it second was or the second one. Okay, was second debate. Hall where they could wander around. Yeah, so he wanders around, and he's coming behind her. He's coming behind her in a really creepy way. And she wrote about yep. it in her book. And she wrote about, yep. I didn't know what to do. To me, that was a very, very famous I, I moment did. in a debate where... Bush turned around, looked at him, and said, yeah, buddy, and then turned around. She didn't remember that? She did not have to remember 15 years back because when you ask who would have thought of it, I'm going to pat myself on the back. I thought of it, and I simulated that. And the reason I did it was because, back to the point about he had never debated, he had never done a town hall debate. And I knew he was going to be confused whether to sit or stand. And I knew he would look at her when she was standing and say, I'm not sitting while she was standing. And I knew he'd be awkward moving around on stage. And I thought he would actually get caught leering at her. But when we practiced before the second debate, I didn't tell her, hey, I'm going to get in your space. But I got real close. I got in her, not just in her baffles, but in her peripheral vision. She does write it in the book. And what she writes in the book is she still doesn't know what would have happened. You know, you and I might have a view about go girl, you turn around and you tell him to fuck off and back off. What Bush did was so minimal. It was just acknowledging you're being a creep with a nod. I could be wrong about this. I believe Rob Portman played Al Gore in George Bush's prep. Bush was sitting governor and they would prep in hotel rooms, in these smaller hotel rooms. And Portman 
would wander around and get into Bush's space. And Bush would say, Rob, what are you doing? And Portman said, look, I watched the tapes. And he did this with Bill Bradley. The guy just taught, he just gets too close to you. And Bush said, you know what? If you guys are going to screw around and, and start doing things that aren't going to happen, then this is pointless. And Bush has later said that the smirk on his face was the first thing he thought of was that Portman did it. And he told Portman to stop screwing around. And George Bush is just a cool character. I mean, he's just a, he's very comfortable in his skin. I know that yeah. story. And that's, that's the point. Stuart Stevens has said that that was prepared. And what I kind of asking is, why not the exact same move? Why not the exact same move? Because Bush, it was muscle memory. He had experienced it. He had done it. He did it again. And it was perfect. With Hillary, you've got a couple of things going on. In a righteous world, she could have done a lot of things. She could have turned around and said, what, what are you doing? You can't grab everyone. You can't like back off. Or she could have stalked him, whatever it is. But, you know, to my point about people can't just do and say everything they want, to the extent that, that she is thinking it through, first of all, you're experiencing weirdness. I mean, it is, in fact, creepy. And you're thinking, can I get away with saying back off? And then if I say back off, are we going to have an exchange about treating women? And if we have an exchange about treating women, is he going to start going after Bill? And if he goes after Bill, is he going to point out Paula Jones and Juanita Broderick sitting 10 feet there? Like it, it, it and it, and then you end up in knots. Okay. Um, I'm, I guess and, maybe I'm not making myself clear. I'm not saying she should have said a thing to him. She should have done exactly what Bush did. And all Bush did was turn around and nod. And, and what his nod said was what you're doing is odd. I'm going to go back to my answer. And she didn't have to say a word. I, to, to do it again, I, I think she would. I would agree with you. Okay, now. but it, it had happened. It had happened yes. in the past. We knew the story, and I just wanted to know the story behind that. Look, you debate in in real time. I've done it. You kick yourself for for things you did and things mainly that you didn't do. But it's it's in real time. And if you had asked me after each of of those debates, I would have said Hillary one hands down so uh thank you for for preparing her and thank you for uh, being with us take care man thank you al bye thank you well i i hope you enjoyed uh listening that beautiful music is by leo kotke the great leo kotke i want to thank peter ogburn for producing this podcast we'll talk again next week Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? 
we recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.